From the standing room section at the Stretford End, it's the Rugby League Cemetery. Is the Rugby League Cemetery. Morgan Campbell and Luke Garrity with you for another journey through the history of rugby league. And today we're going back to 1990 to one of the great games of all time, the second test on the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, the second Ashes Test, Australia 14, Great Britain 10, in front of 46,615 people at Old Trafford in Manchester on the 10th of November 1990. It was the 10th game of an 18-game Kangaroo Tour. Imagine... October to December, the Australian players in the UK uh, travelling around mostly the north of England, playing local sides and playing against the Great Britain side. Uh, and Gazzy, it all came down to this. They lost the first test, 1912, and they came into this second test at risk of losing the Ashes for the first time in 20 years. And Gazzy, uh, what ensued, uh, you are describing and other people have described as the greatest game of rugby league ever played. Oh, mate. Mate. This game, I, what I want you to do, now what I want you to do is to, I want you to melt this down, melt this down into liquid form, and I want you to inject it straight into my veins. This was it. Oh my God, this was a game of football. If people out there watch one game that we have covered, one, yeah. make it this one. If you just sit back and go, I don't want to watch all these games, but it's nice to listen to them, make this the exception. Go and watch this game of football. This is art. This is poetry it's art it's tragic comedy it's everything it, it was this game there's nothing this game didn't have yeah it's it's stunning and you i mean you watched it a couple of days earlier than me and we have a very very uh you know secure rule about not talking about the game before we do the pod because you don't want to ruin them you know you don't mm. want to talk about things for the first time off air uh and you came as close as you've ever come to breaking that because you just kept texting me in all capitals Mate, this game, oh my God, this game, I'm at halftime, this is the best thing I've ever seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now having watched it for myself, it is stunning. Uh, the quality of the game, the speed of the play, the atmosphere, the intensity of it, uh, the madness of it, there's so much incident and event. Uh, it is, it's stunning. It's, it's, this, frene it's this frenetic energy uh, that you don't see very often anymore and that, to be honest, you don't really see even in the old games very often no that's right the, the closest game i could describe it to was it had the only game i've seen with this energy was the 89 grand final had yeah. a similar level of frenetic energy and pace where you just thought everyone must be gone and it just kept going and flowing just probably with less errors this game it was probably maybe because it was international sites it was just uh it had that similar flow and energy and end to end and everything happening but just maybe without um you know in that game Balmain made a lot of errors and that was sort of even in this game there wasn't that many of that was it it was just tit for tat down the field with everything happening and um, contrast to styles as well in a lot of ways between the two sides and how they were both were playing attacking football but there was very different ways of going about it wasn't it it, it was it was 
Ah. Oh. I yeah. just I don't know what to say about. It. I don't know how you could do this justice. This game. No, and we, and, and we inevitably won't. I suspect, but we're going to have a crack anyway. So bear with us, yeah. people listening at home. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how Australia got to this point. This is very much the time when the Kangaroo Tour and international football and tests against Great Britain were still a living, breathing, exciting thing, and a big deal. And you get that sense as soon as they run out and as they go through the anthems and all of this, there is a sense of occasion about this that test matches don't have now. I mean, people, you know, even World Cups and that sort of thing, uh, there's not the excitement about them. They're kind of a bit of an afterthought wedged into the season a lot of the time. And people go, it's almost like a bye week. And, oh, yeah, the test's on, but it's not, you know, it's not the same. Uh, this, this, was, this was not that era. And even though Australia had won every Ashes series uh, from 1973 to 1990, there was a sense that Britain wanted this and Australia wanted it. And uh, it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion or anything like that. Best exemplified by the fact Great Britain won the first test. I just want to take you through the fixtures up before this match. So Australia go to England and their first match is on the 7th of October. Australia 34, St Helens 4. Then the 10th of October, Australia 36, Wakefield Trinity 18. The 14th of October, Australia 34, Wigan 6. The 17th of October, Australia 42, Cumbria 10. The 21st of October, Australia 22, Leeds 10. The 27th of October is the first test. So they've played five games before the first test. Great Britain 19, Australia 12 in front of 54,569 at Wembley. Then on the 31st of October, Australia 26, Warrington 6. The 4th of November, Australia 28, Castleford 8. The 6th of November, so two days later, 36-18 over Halifax. And then four days after that, they finally played Great Britain for the second time at Old Trafford. That's insane, isn't it? It's um, <laughs> one of the really funny things is that when you look at how important this whole tour was viewed, is that in the game, so in the second half of this game, um, Martin Fire goes down injured. And the commentators start speculating that not only will be out of this game, but he might miss the following fixture for his club side playing yeah, against. Yeah, for so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's of any like like that matters. Like they're, mm. they're, Great Britain's trying to re- reclaim the Ashes in this game, and like one of the preeminent concerns is whether he's going to be right to go for witness next week in this game. That sort of if Australia was to lose, will make sort of no rat's ass of difference to anything. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, it count is. for the series, and, doesn't? Yeah, uh, and the, and evidently the club sides. Uh, we're very up for, you know, the contest against Australia. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some good crowd figures for these games. Like the Wigan game, for example, they get 24,814 to see Australia play Wigan at Wigan. Um, yeah, it, 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 was a, it, it was a big deal. And, and it's hard to imagine now. Like, we, we, they would never do this now because of, you know, sports science being the way it is and the clubs paying such high wages that they're not willing to, you know, no club would be willing to have their their players go to the other side of the world for two months after the season and be part of a squad that plays 18 games in two months. There's just no way that any club would allow that to happen. Um, so this is very much one of the last of these proper full-blown tours. And if they did do it now, it just still wouldn't... I know Mal's trying to bring it back in some sort of form because, you know, Mal. But the, the thing is, it doesn't hold up as well once professionalism comes in. You sort of lose that because... 
Australia's the competition's too good now. Like they're not. If you start having yeah. tours every four years, they're gonna they can't be playing winners over there in in the off season. They're gonna you know they'll beat them by seventy points. Like it, it's not. Um, especially you know once the Super League war started, it was already. I said a lot of people say by ninety four it was starting to to be the point where you couldn't do this anyway. But once you get past the Super League war and what that did to the game in Australia in terms of jolting them into professionalism and, and full-time and, and all that sort of stuff, the elite competition just gets too far away from the second competition to be going, you can't, you know, you might be able to go over and play Great Britain three times, but you can't go over and tour, <laughs> tour no. for two months playing these clubs. They played the, the England under-21 side either on this tour or the 94 tour. <laughs> you, you, you can't have, say, now, you, you can't have you know, Payne Haas running no. England under 21 sides like Payne Haas and, you know, playing with, you know, Damien Cook and, and, and um, you, you know, uh, Tedesco and all these guys can't be playing the under 21 Academy England team. It's there's nothing to be gained, but, the, yeah. but in those like, yeah, that's right. And also the England clubs, uh, and I know, and I'm in Australia, win all of those games against the club size and, and fairly convincingly, but, the English club competition was a lot stronger than it is now. I think most people would agree, and and that's borne out by the fact that they regularly won and really and competed in the World Club Challenge and all this sort of thing. Um, but Australia, there, it wasn't what it is now, which is to like to a large extent the English Super League has become a bit of a dumping ground for players who have been cut loose from Australia, right? Like if Australia went over and played against Castleford and Widnes and Warrington now, they'd be playing against a lot of guys who were deemed not good enough to be in the Australian competition. Well, yeah, there's a lot of guys over there winning the Man of Steel and making team of the year that weren't making first grade here or were on the bench in first grade or had just couldn't quite make first grade anymore. And if you go through the team that won last year, there's a lot of guys like your Lachlan Coots and everyone, even the, the peak of that project are guys and Blake Austin's doing well. They're guys that had okay careers but weren't any up to it anymore. Like they were yeah. good players, but they're just a step behind now. And all of a sudden they're able to go over there and be the eminent players. And look, that comes back to professionalism again, because back then when, you know, a, a lot of the best English players are here now as well. But if you go back to that sort of era, if everyone's working and training, the gap between like a Mal Meninga and the best centre in England, even though Mal's a better player, is not going to be as big as the gap now between, or five years ago between Greg Inglis and the English centre, because Greg Inglis is already better. He's got all of that, and he's playing tougher football week to week with all the sports science that goes. It accentuates that gap yeah, to absolutely. a degree. We've the got more money here, more stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The physical, that, that's right. Yeah, you see players, especially backs come out here, um, and, and there's this kind of thing now that English backs can't make it in Australia, but mm. you see backs come out here, and they just look... They, they look physically below par, you know, they're not the right shape mm. to play in the positions they want to play out here and that kind of thing, because it's just not quite as hard and it's not quite as fast. Um, but you're right that because of the lack of, because the professionalism wasn't the same back in those days, it's yeah, the, the gap wasn't as big. And, and so these, these great Britain sides and, and the club sides could be a lot more competitive and Australia didn't really, I don't think Australia really lapped any of them. If you go through the results, like there were no real uh, shellackings of any of the, uh, any of the club sides. There's no Australia putting on 50 or 60 or anything like that. 
Um, well, if you think about the Australian side, if you look at the players in that team, and we'll go through it in a moment, um, those players, like when you were telling me the scores and you're like 30 to 18 or whatever, and you're like, oh, really? Like, really? Yeah. Like against the club yeah. side, like this is, this is Alan Langer or Stewart and Cliffy Lyons and, you know, Blocker Roach and Glenn Lazarus and, and you know, like these sort of, Benny Elias, like what, what do you mean 30 to 18? Like I'm thinking 50, nil. Like the way those players are remembered, you sort yeah. of don't have them sort of winning by a couple of tries and letting in 18, 20 points against, against club side. So it does show that the standard was good. And um, I'm glad you mentioned the crowds because I think what it'll be hard for Australian people to understand is that the game really is very big in the north of England and they, they mm. love this game to death. They're as passionate as anyone in the world. And for pe- for these people, it would be like, um, I mean, I don't follow soccer, but for, for guys here who follow, you know, uh, the English Premier League and all this, it's, you know, it's like, like, you know, and internationally, it'd be like Brazil or Man United coming to play here and touring. Yeah. Like, that, that's the thing you're going to want to like. Brazil come out to tour Australia and play every um, side in the A League, and then and then be Australia, or they play. You know, Man U does that. I mean, you're going to be at those games if you're a soccer fan, aren't you? Like, how often yeah, do you right. get to see that? So they're going and they're going. Oh, hang on, we're going to get to see you know these blokes, these best players in the world that come around, and and, and this is this better than what we see week to week, sort of thing. You know. That's it. It's um, yeah, it's beautiful, and and the, the it's not the atmosphere over there, um, is totally different because they're mad and they make so much mm. racket and they sing and they bellow. There's this mm. bellowing kind of guttural sound that comes from English crowds yep. when something happens. Mm. Uh, I might take you through. I'll take you through the two teams from this game, but I thought I'd just run you mm. quickly through the Australian touring party of twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Alexander, Gary Belcher, Martin Bella, Mark Carroll, John Cartwright. Laurie Daly, Benny Elias, Andrew Enninghausen, Brad Fittler, Mark Geyer, David Gillespie, Michael Hancock, Des Hasler, Chris Johns, Alan Langer, Glenn Lazarus, Bob Lindner, Cliff Lyons, Brad Mackay, Mel Meninga, Mark McGaw, Steve Roach, Mark Sargent, Dale Shearer, Paul Sirenen, Ricky Stewart, Kerrod Walters, Kevin Walters. Um, fair bit of talent in that team. Fairly, yeah, this yeah. is a fairly good list of footballers. It's a funny one. It's a very transitional one. There's a lot of players there that you associate with the 80s and quite a few you associate with the mid-90s. Like It's this yeah. middle, like Steve Roach is playing with Glenn Lazarus. Glenn Lazarus is your 90s best front rower. Blocker Roach is your 80s. And then, you know, like Dale Shearer is your 80s. Mercurial 80s. I know he played into the 90s, but sort of possibly not as well as in the 80s, one might say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's your late 80s and Bob Lindner and these guys. But then you still got, um, but then also like, Ricky and, and, and Laurie Daly are there, you know, like and Mark McGaw and Andrew Eddinghouse. It's a real crossover, isn't it? It's just it is, a yeah. bridge between the mid-90s, these great Raiders and Broncos teams who are about to come through and dominate everything, and they're sort of blending in with um, your, your late 80s sort of players that you yeah, associate more with, with, with Lewis and Pierce errors and Gary Jack and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's it. It's, there's a few of those old, that there's a good kind of Balmain contingent and all of that sort mm. of thing. Um, the other thing about the, the kangaroo tours, which you don't see so much of now, is that there seem to be a lot of Australians who went on the tour. Um, there is a big bank in the grandstand. There's a big bank of Australian fans in the green, green and gold tracksuits who've obviously come over as a touring party, and there were a lot of Australians in the crowd. Uh, it must have been a pretty good time, I would have thought. Well, I, you know, if... if Obviously, it's not something you and I would do now in the current climate, but if this tour was on now in that climate, I think you and I would go and we would have a very good time. Going I reckon to watch, we'd have 
yeah. all these sides, it, you know, that I don't know that I'd go now in the context of what it would be like, but if it was what it was then, I, I think you and I would go. Um, yeah, they, they, they stayed a thing for a while. My grandma and granddad toured the 95 World Cup with the big touring party and it was oh, yeah. still a big thing then. Um, they made a big thing of that. So it, it, it was. And, and, I mean, why not? Like going, this was still really much the pinnacle. This was, it... it it didn't, even though Australia always won, it had the position origin sort of got where it was considered the best thing you could do. Like mm. until, you've got to remember, until the 90s, the mid-90s, um, if you didn't go on a kangaroo tour, like you couldn't go to the Australian reunions. They separately <laughs> categorised. I'm that. serious. Yeah, I know, they I love it. They separately categorised Australian kangaroo tourists and people who played for Australia. So when one day in the mid-90s when they finally opened that up and said, no, if you've ever played for Australia, you can come to the tours and they count. People were blowing up about it, saying it had wrecked the whole thing and the stadium was going to be full of people. Like, it, it's so funny to think of. Like, why does it matter if you went on a kangaroo? Like, if you got picked to play against England in Australia, why were you considered a second-class citizen to someone who went, you know, to Great yeah. Britain on a tour that was every four years? Because the only difference is chance it just happens to be whether you're playing well or in your best form or not injured every four years like you yeah, could quite right. easily play three years of test football in between but have not been that good at the start and have dropped off at the end of the four-year period but like it, it, that's how important it was like imagine why would you make that categorization so I, yeah I'm, I'm, not, I'm at a loss to understand that i, I but you that's the thing about that it? recently but it's very funny yeah what's yeah. well, the thinking though it just shows yeah, yeah. like how important yeah, it was, this, this was, was the business this was yeah. what you had to yeah I suppose uh, it's like in cricket, the difference between like, they don't obviously have a separate categorization for this, but it's almost like in cricket, there is something about playing ashes tests and not like you can play all the test cricket you like, but yeah. playing in the ashes is just given a significance that doesn't and, and, hold over that having played England, regardless of whether England are any good is yeah. somehow just something that's not the same as playing the West Indies, playing New Zealand and everything else. So, oh yeah, he played 10 ashes tests. That that you know that's probably the closest we can get to describe it. That that was still this for league. Yeah, and there's the, the well when Super League breaks out on the '94 Kangaroo Tour, you know, there's all this talk from Arco that he's just so disappointed that this was allowed to ruin the Kangaroo Tour. You know, that he had to come <laughs> home and all this kind of thing. It's a real, um, yeah, it was the it was the thing. Uh, well, that's, would, the, that's the main fallout, isn't it, from the whole thing? Arco had to fly home after one of the tests. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, now it's very I'll, endearing, though. It's very endearing that, like, for all these faults, it, it's horribly endearing that he was the what really crushed at the idea of missing a test. <laughs> you're missing a kangaroo to a test, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Now, I'll take you through the sides. Uh, mm. The Australian side, I've just been through the squad, but this was the team that went out for the second test. Uh, fullback Gary Belcher, the wings Andrew Eddinghausen and Dale Shearer, the centres Mel Meninga and Laurie Daly, Mel Meninga, of course, captain. The halves Cliff Lyons and Ricky Stewart, the forwards Glenn Lazarus and Steve Roach in the front row. Benny Elias at hooker and back row, Paul Siren and Bob Lindner and Brad Mackay, coached, of course, by Bob Fulton. A few changes from the first test, which they, of course, lost. Rowdy Shearer in for Hancock, Daly in for Sparkles McGaw, Lyons in for Langer. Uh, Ricky Stewart played 5-8 in the first test. He moved to halfback and Cliff Lyons moved into the six. Lazarus into the side for Marty Bella. Uh, Benny Elias in for, uh, for Walters and Brad Mackay in for John Cartwright. So it was a, uh, a fairly shaken up side for the second test, having lost the first one. Uh, whereas for Great Britain, fullback Steve Hampson, the wings Martin Chariots of Fire and Paul Eastwood, centres Daryl Powell and Carl Gibson, the halves Gary Schofield and Andy Gregory, front row Carl Harrison and Andy Platt, the hooker Lee Jackson, back row Dennis Betts, Paul Dixon and the captain Ellery Hanley and the bench Paul Lachlan 
and Kevin Ward, coached by Mel Reilly, uh, the great man. Doesn't he look well, Mel Reilly? I got to tell you, mm. I, Mel Reilly is like a like a he's like a grandfather to me. <laughs> yeah, feel, 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 but yeah. he feels like a, he feels like a family member, you know. As a Newcastle yeah. supporter who grew up in the nineties, he was the godfather. He was the he was oh, the yeah. guy, you know. It was very oh, nice. Yeah. It was nice seeing him again. He looked well. But, it's uh, so scary. Oh yeah. Uh, he, can you imagine? Oh yeah. Yeah, you know um, they were talking about him on they talked about him on Matty Johns' podcast this week and Matty said in the ninety five World Cup they went to catch up with Malcolm and he was trying to sign someone to Newcastle and Malcolm's just walked up to some guy in the pub, he's trying to sign him to the Knights from the English club and he goes, Oh, there's a big set of arms you got on you there and he goes, Oh thanks and then Malcolm just goes, Bet they're all for show. Come on and just sticks his arm on the table and goes, Fifty quid for an arm wrestle and the guy goes, Oh no, and he goes, No, nah, come on and then Mal just smokes him, smashes him yeah, down and Matty goes, he, he never came to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just he's totally mad Mal yeah <laughs> I love him. A, the man's a god I won't hear a bad yeah. word about him it was no, lovely to see lesson. him again the other very funny thing about this train team is that despite this incredible work and this is again about professionalism and sports science and workloads and all no red zone back in 1990 baby hmm. they've played 10 matches in about six weeks and yet they don't use anyone. They don't use any of their bench in this frenetic 80-minute test match in the mud against England, uh, against Great of Britain. Which, yeah, of which the game is tied with, like, say, five minutes left. So it's extremely tight. Yeah, um, you they know, just push on. Yeah, there's no sense that you need fresh legs. Um, can I make one point about the team list? Uh, yes. There's a, a point of contention here that I, I feel that uh, there's been a big mistake made by Fulton here that they were lucky to get away with and it offends my sensibilities uh, very much. So in this game, Blocker Roach is named in the eight. Yeah. Glenn Lazarus is named in the 10. And I just think that if it's not in the laws of rugby league, then it needs to be inserted as a bylaw that the chunky, shorter prop, your nuggetier style prop, where's the eight? And your big, tall prop, where's the 10? There is something harrowingly unpleasant about watching... Blocker wearing eight while while Lazo, your quintessential eight, is in the ten. And it's the worst I've felt since watching that State of Origin game, again, possibly by Fulton. No, it was Gould in that other one, that wore Spud Carroll in ten with the Chief and eight. It, it, it's yeah, horribly no, wrong. wrong. It's unsettling. And it's I'm surprised unsightly. the players were able to – I'm surprised they were over, able to overcome it because you just – you can't do that. You, you can't be putting – you know, it, it, I don't know why it's the case, but you Shane Webke and Petro Sivanasiva are your model. Webkey's yep. your eight, seven and seven is your ten. You can't be yep. swapping that around. It looks wrong. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. And this has been I, I totally agree. Um and every week I every week I watch the Newcastle Knights and I see uh David Clemmer run out in the eight and it makes me ill. Mm. And they'll never that's win anything. So inconsistent. And they'll mm. never win anything while that's the case. Um that's just a fact of life. Um mm-hmm. yeah, see back in the good old days of the Chief and, and Paul Harrigan uh, sorry, of the Chief and Paul Butts, Har- of, uh, yeah. of Tony Butterfield in the eight and the Chief in the ten. It, it has to be. That's how it has to be. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you've brought this up and you're right, Australia were lucky to get away with it. Um but but get away with it they did. We might get into the game a little bit. Now the mm. Commentary for this game is very funny. This was the now, the early nineties seems to have been this brief period in the history of rugby league where you had alternating play by play commentators. And we've talked about this a little bit in the context of the eighty nine grand final where you had three, which is stunning. Uh, but in nineteen ninety, these matches shown on Channel Ten, uh, proudly sponsored by Just Jeans, showed in the middle of the night in Australia on Channel Ten, called by Graham Hughes and David Morrow. 
Now, yeah. I'm going to tell you, Gazzy, David Morrow is a long-standing favourite of mine. I think he might be my favourite rugby league commentator uh, of, of all time. And due to his exploits on the ABC, mm. ABC radio, um, he's got a wonderful, again, guttural roar um, that when any, whenever anything exciting happens, it's incredibly rousing and stirring. But his performance in this match, we're going to get to a few bits and pieces, I suspect, uh, is, I think, the most, <laughs> the most biased, barracking, one-eyed commentary performance I've ever heard. Yeah, it's considerably worse than, you know, listening to Fatty do the State of Origin or something like that. It's much worse than that. It's probably much worse than listening to our podcast on the nights last week. It's it's appalling. Um, it's, it's very funny. It's, it, it's quite terrible. Uh, he'd, um, um, you mentioned that this was a brief phase of sort of multiple call-by-call. Call. There's a reason that it was brief. I'll tell you yeah. that much. Like, there's a reason that this experiment didn't last. But, no, it, the commentary is – well, I think we'll get to it as the game goes, but it – it's different. Yeah, it is different. And I guess this is a figure of the fact that, you know, it was exclusively for an Australian audience, right? So you could get away. Like, there's no... if You, could, you couldn't call Manly against Parramatta like this, right? No. no and call them no, we and all this kind of... Them. People would blow right up. Like, there'd be a, there'd be a judicial inquiry. Uh, but for a test match that only Australians were... Or a commentary mm. that only Australians were watching, um, mm. I suppose you get away with it a little bit more. Um, but again, his intense passion for Australia to win this game is this a mark of how significant these games were. You know, the people really cared about the outcome of the Kangaroo Tour. Mm. Um, they had uh, Graham Lowe, the, uh, the New Zealand coach, uh, as the other commentator with a fellow called Tony Durkin, who I must say I don't know a lot about. Uh, but he did, he did, Tony Durkin did endear, uh, endear himself to me just before the game when he interviewed Wally Lewis. And at the end of the interview said, I think, uh, I think most people would wish you all the best on your comeback from injury which I thought was very funny that only most people would to be a sort of small <laughs> handful of people like, no, bugger him, you know. <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that yeah. was very good. Um, the, I suppose, uh, do you want to go, do you want to go through sort of generally about the game or I've got a couple of players that played all right. How do you want to, how do you want to address this? One? What I want to do is I want to say from the top that mm. the thing that I, before the game, it even, well, as the game kicked off, I was immediately into it. Uh, because of the exuberance with which mm. referee Alain Sablarole mm. signals the kickoff with the big whirring arm, he sort of plants both feet, sticks one arm out and swings the other one exuberantly through to signal the yeah. kickoff. And I thought to myself, hang on, who the hell is this? Uh, mm. And we we'll find we, out more. Mm. Oh, yeah. So we had the pleasure of Julien Rascaniero uh, in the Australia versus New Zealand uh, test involving Olsen Filipina and others that we covered mm. a few weeks ago. Uh, there was, again, this wonderful tradition of having these cooked French referees refereeing test matches because you couldn't have a re- you couldn't have a referee from either of the countries. And sadly, International Rugby League has got rid of that rule now, I think. Um, but I've got to tell you, this bloke, he was fantastic. Some yeah, of his signalling, I've never seen anything like this. The exuberance, the flamboyance yeah, of the signals. It, it left Billy Bowden for dead. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that they thought that the answer to getting good referee performance was to exclude referees from the only two good competitions in the world, which was the English comp and the Australian comp. The only two comps that were of any import in the entire world 
they, they just excluded all of the referees from that on the basis it, of being it, from those countries. Yeah, mm. and this is the it's same. sort of like excluding NRL referees from state of origin on the basis that they're from Queensland and New South Wales. It doesn't yeah, limit well, your <laughs> options. <laughs> it's like, like picking them from the Victorian competition. I just love that you get all you assemble all of these magnificent footballers on the field. Yeah. The best in the world, in the, you know, the best rugby league players you can find. You put them all on the field together, and to referee them, you get some bloke who, as nearly as anyone knows, probably works in as an accountant or a PE teacher through the week, or possibly in this bloke's case, uh, some kind of performance artist. But yeah, um, yeah it, it is. It's very funny. I, I was, um, yeah, I was, I was very, very. I, I'm a serial referee hater, uh, mm. but this bloke endeared himself to me no end. Uh, he refereed all three tests in the series and caused great controversy, uh, so much so in the first test that uh, they mentioned that the Australian team had a phone hookup with him midweek before the second test. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that call? You'd have to be a fly on the wall between Bozo talking to this French referee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Like, I reckon uh, he would have tried on the charm, Bozo. I reckon, I reckon, he, would have, uh, I reckon he would have tried to sweet talk him. Yeah, well, the opposite. Well, <laughs> yeah. What did they say to what did they say to Bill Harrigan? I hope you get hit by a cement truck, and I hope it's full. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, hard, it's hard not to back that. <laughs> That's fairly in line with some of the views we've expressed yeah. on this program. I mean, we've complained about a lot of referees mm. uh, since we started this project, but I've got to tell you, uh, Alan Sablo Rollers uh, is not going to be one of them. Uh, he he was magnificent, and I, I he probably should be one of them, but he probably nah, won't be. He won't, he won't be absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, uh, another thing from the early in the match that I, I liked was the talk that Glenn Lazarus uh, had seventeen stitches in his forehead, mm. uh, which seems like a big deal. But when you got head the size of his, I suppose it probably didn't cover that much of his head. It was probably only quite a small cut in the context yeah. of his actual like cranium. Yeah, it's um, it's good. It goes to the speaks to the tour again because he didn't play in the first test, but they've played like enough football that he's been able to get seven in stitches before he's required to play in the only for the second test game. Yeah. yeah, well, it's only one of the only games that matters. There's three tests, and they're the only ones that matters. And despite not playing in the first one, he's been given the opportunity to severely damage his face and head before playing because they've played like ten games or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, can I yeah. get some? Can I get some overall impressions of this game? Yeah. When they mm. kick it off, you can tell pretty quickly that it's different to the sort of football we watch now and that it's probably different to even football that's played at the time because it's frenzied and frenetic and there are all these things happening that you never see anymore. Um, have you some, some general impressions about the, the type of football that's played here? Yeah. Um, well, I, this probably won't help you. I called it indescribable football in my notes, but I'll try, I'll try yeah, nonetheless. That, that sort of, um, it, it sort of it, defeats the purpose of this. Yeah, of this yeah it does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look... That what it was was just this. There was this frenetic pace that I felt I couldn't keep up with when I was watching the game, and I didn't know what to say. So, like, rather than being like, "Gee, Ricky Stewart did something good there, and it was a nice play," it was like every bit of play was this wave after wave of beautiful football. Um, there was long shifts from within the ten meters by both teams. They would be in their own ten and go long pass, long pass, break down the sideline. There were switches of play, so you'd go long pass, long pass, and then all of a sudden, boom, back on the inside to someone cutting back infield who would roam across and they'd spread it to the other wing. Um, and everything happened so fast. Everyone was making ground. I, the, the best example I can give, I, try, I wrote an example of, of saying sure. that this is the sort of thing that was happening all the time, is there's this play where five out from the try line, they hit Blocker Roach <laughs> and Blocker, under a heap of pressure with people charging up, goes 
bang, three-man cut out, this front rower to Mal on the chest, who quick hands it, like barely has it for two seconds, quick hands it because the wing is flying on him, quick hands to Rowdy, who goes flying 40 metres down the sideline, bumping out, like, away down the sideline, bumps out of three and gets smashed on halfway. And he then does it's just bang, go again. absolutely belted, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. And then it's just go again, zing, 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 and all of a sudden they're, they're storming up the other side. And that play was the whole game. Like, this wasn't like, wow, that's that one thing that was funny to watch. It was like, well, no, then England go, whiz, whiz, go. And then Australia go across the other side. Benny goes out of dummy half, across two, across to Blocko, back inside, swing to the other wing. And all of this just kept happening where it looked like everyone was out in their feet from the immediate start of the game. And it just kept going. It was so it is. It's so open and back and forth. And and it's that thing that you've never seen in football that, one of the things that I love about watching games from this era in particular mm. is that everybody is always looking to move the ball and looking mm. for space, stay alive, keep the ball alive, that something will open up, something will open up. And so even the front rower will bang into the tackle, but he'll be turning and trying to look for the pass. The half will get it and look both ways. There's no preconceived kind of plan mm. as to what you're going to do. And it just brought the ability of what, like what you said about Blocker Roach, that it brought the ability of every player out because if something was on, even your front rower goes, no, no, it's on out there. I'm going to shift it, you know, uh, which they're Bl- coached now not to do. Yeah. Blocker Roach does stuff in that game and in the 89 grand final that halfbacks now can't do. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's just, this is the football I dream about. There was points of this game where I started howling. Like I was like, oh, oh, oh yeah. like stuff like that, just in the middle, not on the tries, like just in the game. I'm, I'm just getting on my feet and just, making noises of excitement and it, this is the sort of thing that I would just want to watch every single day this is the pinnacle of the sport and it was just wonderful it was yeah. wonderful football there's another that that Rowdy Shearer one is a good example there's another one where uh, Ricky Stewart misses touch he kicks for touch and misses and I think it's Gibson who catches it for, for Great Britain uh, Gibson tears upfield and then swings it left and it's in the middle of the park and they give it back to Ellery Hanley. Oh my God. And he gets the ball. He takes, he goes off the left, bang, and then goes again, bang, and then goes, fends someone off, bursts into space into the backfield and is dragged down like by the clutches about 20 metres out. The crowd's going absolutely berserk. The commentator's going absolutely berserk. It was just incredible. And like, yeah, can I just, can I have a word? He doesn't, he doesn't do a lot in this game, but can we just have a word on Ellery Hanley and the ludicrous, ridiculous, magnificent physicality of him? Yeah. Like he, he looks just, about right, doesn't he? I've never seen I've never seen somebody run the ball like that. He has this particular way of running the ball. He he busts through tackles, he finds he pokes his head through the line, finds space, but and, and has this incredible power into the contact and fending players off, but then an incredible turn of speed at the same time. I struggled to, I I kept wanting to give some, give people a a read on him. You know, I like to compare people. I can't, I can't, I don't have one. I really don't. Um, I don't, there's, there is an element. Uh, this is probably too old because it's the same element. There's an element of a young Brad Fittler there with the the pace of the sidestep and the bursting. Not late, clever Freddie. There's an element of Penrith and mid '90s Fittler when he was playing lock forward and centers. When he would, you know what I mean? Like when he would get it and um, he had that snapping foot and he would use that to like when he steps he would gain pace and he could power through. There's an element of that to him. Yeah. That's as close as I can give you. But like Freddie was just like. 
sloppy looking dude from Penrith who looked like if he wasn't playing, he'd be in the pokies and stuff. Like Ellery looks like he's bodybuilding, like Greek oh, yeah. God. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. different. And, and that's not a perfect comparison I might add, but that's, I can't, that's all I've got for you. I can't, it, it's unique. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, unique. Just, um, um, I have one thing on him too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, as people may, may have picked up on at some point, I'm not a huge Wally Lewis man. He's very, like I've, I've credited how he played in the last test we saw, but I think he's a bit of a tosser and it was quite funny that, that it was, he gave this really appalling commentary, which is just lacking any grace when they, they ask him about Ellery and he goes, well, the thing about Ellery Hanley is he can only run on the right side of the field. If he runs on the left side, he always gets taken to the first tackle. He can't, do anything over there, like really, yeah, like he can't use his he can't use his fend. He, he said, yeah, oh, he, he can't know. fend. If you see him, you get tackled first time, and he's ineffective. He actually says that, and it's like it's yeah. just really appalling for someone in the Australian setup in the middle of the test. But so I make a note of it, and I watch, and Ellery drifts over to the right hand side. Uh, ten minutes after he says this, having not run their all game, takes it, eyes up the defence, powers straight into him like like a Martin Lang or something, like just powers straight into yeah. them, skittles skittles two of them and runs straight over the top of the two defenders and makes fifteen metres and he goes, Yeah, good one, Wally. Yeah. You look struggled, struggled on the right hand side. Because the thing <laughs> that people the thing that people in Australia might not realise about about Ellery is that he because because he plays in the centres for for Balmain when he comes out here in '88, and he only plays a few games, but he he's in the centres and he's this dynamic runner and speed out wide. And all the footage of him from his Balmain run is dummy and go out on the edge and in mm. space and tearing up. But the thing about it is he played a lot of football at lock in the UK. He played mm. his main game. He played a lot of either lock or five eighth, but particularly lock. And he he's lock and captain in this side. Um, and a lot of the work that he does is up the middle, up against the forwards. And he's every bit um, big enough and strong enough to do that. It's remarkable. Just to, to, as, a, as a physical kind of specimen, incredible. He yeah. scored... Well, lock back then, yeah, it was very much a second 5'8 sort of position. It was a position mm. where if you're good with the ball, but, but a strong carrier as well, you, you had to be good. You had, what it was, was like a guy um, who had a strong carry but was clever with the ball. That's who used to play lock forward. Like Brad Fittler yeah. was your quintessential early 90s lock forward and Laurie Daly would play there a little bit and that sort of thing. And those guys were, in modern parlance, it's where you put a Wade Graham. It's not where you put a Jason Talmalolo. So yeah, Ellery Kingley right. was clev- a clever passer and runner, but he could also do a forward's role. So that's, yeah. that's what when that position really, was, wasn't it? Yeah, when he really winds up and busts through a tackle, it's the same thing. I was making, I was making noises like, oh, <laughs> like here we go. Yeah. Uh, 55 tries in 37 games in 1984-85 for Bradford, mm. um, which is fairly good going. And in his five years at Wigan, 202 games for 189 tries. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and at 34 in the 94-95 season, playing almost exclusively at lock, 41 tries. What did he end um, up for his whole career? Oh, 396 tries in 489 games. You know that's not the best English record. <laughs> yeah, well, I could, well, because the best English record was out on the wing yeah. in this game. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. talk about him as well because he doesn't get much of a look here. Unfortunately, we're going to have to find a Martin mm. Fire game, like one yeah. where really possibly the one where he scores ten tries. Yeah, the, I think that's on yeah. in, the, in the English first division. But uh, four hundred and twenty-four professional games for Martin Fire, four hundred and forty-four mm. tries. Yeah, it's not bad going. Not bad going. Um, it's, you know, again, he has a pretty quiet game, but, yeah, it's a phenomenal record. Um, 
I suppose uh, having talked about the general impression of the first half, the other thing we have to, oh, sorry, the game, the other thing we have to mention is, is in terms of the flow of this game is the demented uh, adherence to field goal attempts by the Great yeah. Britain side. What's that all so about? They attempt their first field goal in the fourth set of the game. So that's mm. maybe sort of three or four minutes into the game. They subsequently attempt four in the first half yeah. and another one in the second half. Ironically, none of them, I don't think, were when the game was 10-all, which the game, <laughs> the no, game was 10-all no, a couple of minutes ago. But four first half attempts at field goal, none at the bell. None of them are uh, to end the half or, or, or like that. They're genuine attempts to move the score. And it starts from the fourth set of the game. And I just make the point that being 20 or 30 out four times that you attempt a field goal, losing the game by four, is it just a little bit of a marker that you only had to score once in those four missed attempts to have plucked one? You yeah. know, like given they lose 14 10. Yeah, they might have just really used the to... ball to try and go over the line. Because they've, and the thing about it is they really fritter away. The first half is their best, and this sounds silly mm. because they score twice in the second half, but their best field position is in the first half. They, they, they mm. spend a lot more time on the Australian line in the first half than they do in the second. And the two tries mm. that they score in the second half, one of them is an intercept and the other one is you know, fairly against the run of play. Um, mm. So maybe if they'd stopped kind of trying to pot field goals to go one nil in front, they might've scored and, uh, you know, got themselves something in the game. It's a shame. I would have loved to have seen one nil lead in a test well, match. It would yeah, have been a nice play, oddity. Yeah. Well, I mean, to play devil's advocate, they missed five and they only lost 14, 10. So oh, so you know, that's true. Hit, <laughs> if they had hit all of them, maybe we wouldn't be talking about it. It's that's genius. So. <laughs> can, I, can I just share with you, uh, we're talking about um, Martin of Fire. Uh, can I just share with you a fact about the 1988 Great Britain Tour of Australia? Uh, a fire took part in a 100-metre match race at Wentworth Park Dog Track in Sydney against Australian Flyers Dale Shearer and John Ferguson. Ferguson replaced Greg Alexander, who was forced to withdraw through injury, uh, confirming his stand in the uh, standing as the fastest player in rugby league. A fire won the race easily from Shearer and Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, did they... Um any word on whether, you know, Kerry Chikorovsky was also asked to, to attend sure. the other chicka? I'm, I'm not sure if um, the second chicka was involved, but I thought you'd like that. No, he also, no. he then did a match race against Lee Quendron uh, in 1990, uh, 1992. Yeah. I'm disappointed we didn't get to see. I would have thought, once you were talking at the dog track, I thought he was going to race a greyhound. I was going to be right up I would have loved, loved to say that. Yeah. 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 Jesus. Yeah. I thought, you'd like, see, this is again, and we talked about the, the, the fastest man in rugby league race from 99. We need to bring back frivolous match racing between rugby league players in rugby league jerseys. That's what people in, in the boots and in the full gear. That's what mm. people want to see. Well, um, get rid of this pre-match entertainment at the grand finals. And yeah. Put on a match race. Put yeah. on a match race like they do in the AFL. That's right. Mm. Anyway, uh, the, the, the incidents of the match, uh, there are a heap of field goal shots in the first few minutes. Uh, there is some beautiful football, as we said. And then in the 23rd minute, the first try of the game, it's great footy, this. Uh, it starts on halfway. It's a Lions run. Cliff Lyons in his first test match. No pressure, young man. Uh, comes into the side. Uh, he runs, puts Stewart through a gap, just holds the ball up, just looking for space, waiting for space, finally sees the gap and puts Stewart through it. Stewart's tackled, offloads to Laurie Daly. Daly throws an overhead ball to Rowdy Shearer, who absolutely burns down the wing, throws the dummy to Eddinghausen, who for some reason is to his left, uh, despite them both being on opposite wings, uh, and goes over to score uh, a, a beautiful try, and probably the, but probably the third best try scored in the game. 
<laughs> which speaks yeah. volumes about this match. Um, yeah. Just on the, it, on, yeah. No, do go on. It was just beautiful. I just wrote when I when they scored it. I just wrote fucking art. I just wrote that <laughs> and just nothing else. It it it, it was beautiful. Um, Cliffy's going to come up again, but you know he was one of the players on my list. He was exceptional in this Test match. They don't win without him. He was, uh, as your old man would say, he ran in circles quite a lot in this game, yeah. but but quite yeah. quite well. Quite um, he was circling. Ex- yeah. yeah, except effective circling. And the finish by Rowdy was just beautiful. He had balance. He, you remember when we watched the Origin when he was old and a really old man wearing old man pants. He did, and we said he looked like the remnants of a lot doing there. Like he just looked yeah. like he had a lot of class. You, this is where you saw it. This was when he still had that. He, he gets he's in space. The way he burns away, and then the way he looks to his winger, like and then as he looks to pass to his winger, cuts off the foot back inside with that that indescribable poison balance that your your Haynes and these guys, you know, your Ballantyne yeah. Holmes, you know that, that, yeah, that, that balance that the yeah. athletes have, that they, they just move so smoothly and beautifully. It was a wonderful try. Um, he has a good game, Rowdy, and Cliffy is a, yeah, tick to him. He's very good. Um, daily, He's building a, bit daily, of a, daily, building a bit of a resume at the cemetery now, Cliffy. Yeah. Yep, we'll we'll is, talk about he him is. some more, but he, yeah, he's building yep. a bit of a CV. Uh, yeah. Laurie just, Daly, just quickly. Laurie yeah. Daly, just because he's involved in that try, he has an outstanding game in defence. Uh, he, he's involved in a couple of good plays. He has aggressive, strong runs, and he's very clever. He puts Rowdy away a couple of times with clever balls where he scoots in and then looks back outside. But he absolutely, there's a run right where Ellery Hanley powers at him and he stops him like he's hit a wall. Like he yeah. just goes, have that and stops him dead. And then a fire makes this big run at him and he belts him again. And there's just this sense that a lot of guys talk in the mid nineties that he's the real thing that turned origin that you had Laurie Daly was coming through and he was big and aggressive and he was hitting blokes hard and, and playing with a lot of power and, and, we just missed the best of him, but you could start to see that he, what you saw was when he, he was clever. Like there was this clever sort of play he did, but in defense and with the ball, he had this real aggression, didn't he? Like he was whacking their best players and stopping them dead and then running hard. And you could tell he was a really big sort of nasty guy to, to have to tackle and, and deal yeah. with. He was, mm. um, yeah, you, that's right. I mean, you and I being the age we are, we kind of missed, mm. as you say, missed the best of him. And what, like, I remember him, as mm. old Laurie, where he was, he had the shot knees, and he was playing five eighths for a fairly ordinary Raiders side, and he was yeah. still good, and he still set up, he was classy and all that, but it wasn't that the physicality had gone away. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, 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 not in this he's game. Clever he, and using yeah. experience. By he's then, wonderfully, and... he's wonderfully athletic yeah. in this match. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Can I just commend to you and to the listeners, um, any listeners who use Twitter? Uh, I want to commend to you an account called Dale Shearer Hourly. Uh, I don't know who is responsible for this. The tag is at Rowdy on the hour. Uh, and listeners, if you are, if you're users of Twitter, I really commend this to you because it is, uh, look, I won't overcomplicate it. It's a bot that show, that posts the same picture of Rowdy Shearer every hour. Um, and the, the, the caption, it's, so there was one uh, this morning, 10 o'clock this morning. It's August 22, 2020 at 10am. Here comes Rowdy. It's just a footage. It's just a picture of Rowdy Rowdy Shearer on the burst, like busting through a tackle. It's a beautiful concept. I don't know what maniac decided to make this, but full marks. And uh, if you're a rugby league person and you're on Twitter and you're not following Rowdy on the hour, you're not living because every now and again you'll be scrolling, looking for something. You'll be scrolling through your time, like your tweets, and you'll just see this picture of Dale Shearer hitting a gap, and it's a beautiful thing. 
It sounds like the sort of person who might sort of listen to us, doesn't it? Somebody well, exactly. might think, want to listen to us talk about games for an hour and a half. That's right. They, whoever this, whoever it is, they might be thinking right now. Thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I commend whoever did that, and I hope you do listen. Uh, one more thing about the, uh, the 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 Dale Shearer try is that someone in the crowd has got a banner that just says Newcastle Knights in capital letters. Um, <laughs> I thought that was very funny because <laughs> it kind of doesn't. It's just the Knights don't even. They've only got one player in the in the, on the tour. Um, yeah. um, but anyway, I, I thought that was good. Yeah. Maybe uh, it's preempting Malcolm Reilly and Lee Jackson demanding we sign them. Getting that out might of, be it. Yeah, Newcastle you'll win a comp. subliminal yeah. messaging. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good things will come your way. Uh, mm. Now there is a penalty in the thirty-second minute, which allows Great Britain to go four-two behind, and this is a penalty for. One of the things which you never see anymore and which I lament, I've got to tell you, Gazzy, the good old-fashioned face massage. Yeah. Zero. Zero on Harrison. Harrison on the ground. Zero over the top with the big meat fingers. Have a bit of that. Just mushing all over him. Yep, it was. I tell you what, Steve Roach could have been penalised 73 times in this game for that. For various (laughs) massage. Uh, Yeah, it seems to have been quite a Balmain thing. He was a big thing as well. Um, it was good to see. Um, I tell you what, um, the Buttocks had a good game. He Doesn't was rambunctious and strong. Dynamic, yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he was a real powerful edge, wasn't he? He had a good game yeah. in the 89 grand final on this one. He, he just, every time he runs onto the ball, it's with this power and, and energy, isn't it? And, and he, he has a big impact every time he runs the football. You're very good. I, watching, you know, I saw Ciro play in 97 in my earliest memories of him when he was dead set, like, quite... Like a draft horse, yeah, yeah, he's big and slow and finished and probably shouldn't have been playing. And that's not this. Like, every time we've watched the buttocks now, he just goes up in my in my estimate. Yep. Not least because I get to say the buttocks, but, like, also he just is quite exceptional in the two games that we've watched him in so far. Really, yeah. really powerful. Yeah. Well, this is the ultimate example of, our oh, don't the palms hate zero, Roy. You know, it's oh, yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he was, um, yeah, he was fantastic. There's some lovely play, like... In this, Andrew, to, to go to your point about the the, the the energy of this match and the kind of constant attack and counter-attack, there's a moment uh, a few minutes before half-time where Andrew Eddinghausen, who was a real tear away down the wing, and we'll, there'll be more on him in a minute, uh, but he chips and chases for himself. Uh, and instead of getting it back, it's caught on the full by the English, uh, the British fullback, Hampson, who kind of blacklocks, like he catches it against the grain and just tears at them and breaks a couple of tackles and gets back to about halfway. Uh, it's just beautiful play. And then he is tackled by Rowdy Shearer, who attempts to uh, rake at the ball with his foot. And it's a penalty to Britain. And the referee's blown it up, saying that he wasn't allowed to do it. And David Morrow, who has already had a couple of moments, uh, he absolutely bellows a couple of times earlier in the game about bad refereeing decisions, but he totally loses his head at this point. Oh, he's got to penalise Great Britain. They're the ones who made the mistake. This is disgraceful refereeing. This bloke doesn't know the rules. Mm. We've got to do something about this French referee. Yeah, and then goes on to declare no French referees should be allowed to, to referee again on the basis again. of this boat's out. <laughs> yeah, it, it's quite, quite a blow-up. And he did doubles down when they watched the replay, which did appear to be the wrong call, I must say. He just appeared to be entitled to that. He keeps bringing it up for um, several minutes yeah. until half-time, every time anything goes wrong for Australia. And this all goes back to that terrible decision by the referee. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it's just us watching Knights games, but on with yeah, a yeah, microphone. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, tw- twenty minutes after one questionable call, and we're now down by twenty or something, and we're really like linking it back to this one error. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, from what's really funny is you get to on a roll in the second half when a few more things happen, but then you start getting these quite correct calls or fifty-fifty calls go one way, and he just keeps doubling down, or it's like ah, oh, ah oh, again. Then they'll see the replay, and he goes ah, oh, oh, maybe he had a point there. Like he's just yeah, so he gone right. that. He any, might be right. it, Anything the referee does, he just totally loses his head. Like, it's, it's quite unprofessional. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, um, I, I, yeah, it was endearing in a way. You'd never hear some of the, you'd never hear some of the half-baked journalists that they get calling football now blowing mm. up like that, showing that kind of passion. Uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was endearing in its own way. Um, mm. He was wonderful when he used to call on the ABC. So he was, he's a mad Saints supporter. And... Um, but of course, you'd never get away with this kind of barracking on the ABC calling the, the NRL. So, but it kind of manifested itself in just absolutely dropping his bundle when things were going bad for Saints. Like he would just start bagging them. And he kind of would really, if things went particular, and Saints, of course, particularly during the late 90s and the early 2000s, they did have this kind of calamitous streak. Things would go horribly wrong for them at the worst possible time. And he would just, oh, the Dragons, that's another catastrophic error by Jason Riles. You know, he'd just kind of <laughs> blow his top completely. It was wonderful. Um, now, there's some great Australian defence late in the first half because Britain started to really push and uh, Australia repelled them and turned them around. Uh, and then an extraordinary incident with a couple of minutes till half time where Lee Jackson is injured. And the referee just comes over and takes the ball off. He kind of rushes over to the seat of the injury. And I think he's... You sort of think, is he going to try and assist? But he just strips him of the ball in a clean one-on-one steal. And then has Great Britain play it right next to him while he's getting treatment? Like yeah, maybe and they take two, a hit up. Maybe two metres away. Yeah. They and take they a run. hit up. The next tackle is about a metre away from him. And they play it a metre away from him and one outrun basically where he's standing. And just they just yeah. all play around him laying on the ground, not moving with a, a treat, treatment going on. It was extraordinary. Uh, yeah, really bizarre. And they go into halftime at Australia 4, Great Britain 2. 7-5 uh, penalty count in the first half in favour of Great Britain. Um, mm. There is a bit of a sense that the referee is imposing himself on the game a little bit. Uh, mm. But at halftime, like, this would have been a great test. If the, first, if the second half had gone on from this to be bland, people would have thought, geez, that was, still, that was a really good game on the basis of some of the incident and energy of the first half. Little mm. would they have known Sitting at home, I hope nobody went to bed. You know, like I, this would have been, this would have kicked off maybe two o'clock in the morning here. Um, I just hope that nobody thought, oh no, I can't hack this. I can't. I, we're gonna, we're gonna be alright here. I can't. I'm gonna have to go to bed, um, and missed what came next because that is the, you know, I've I've spent a lot of my life watching sport in the early hours of the morning, following, uh, you know, the, the English Premier League and this sort of thing, and you always have to weigh it up. That there is this, there is this calculus of how good is this match going to be versus how much do I need to sleep? Mm. You know? Uh, and mm. there would have been a lot of people who had to make that call. And I hope all of them got it right and didn't miss what came next. Uh, just on the well, subject. It's worth of, noting that nothing yeah. this game is famous for has happened yet. And I'm already texting you saying it's the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah, but that's I, right. I, I, nothing that the game is famous for has happened yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, and then Wally weighs in on the reference. So they, co- they go down to Wally Lewis' special comments again. Uh, and on the subject of the referee, he's quite good this. He says, 
well, as far as I'm concerned, they should take the whistle off him as soon as possible and only go give it back if he gets a job as a postman. <laughs> well, he's still involved in the Australian setup. He said, quite good. retired." No, that's right. I think he was just injured. Yeah, yeah, just out. yeah. yeah quite good. And then the drama of the. This is one of the people talk about all these different things that happen in this game, and Malmeen is trying, Cliff Lines is trying, but this is the moment. They come yep. out from half time, and the referee has to take the ball off Ellery Hanley and Gary Schofield because of a complaint from the Australians. And Graham Hughes, uh, who was eagle-eyed and must have been tipped up through the week that they'd done this in the previous match, explains what's happened. So Ellery Hanley and Gary Schofield have come out for the second half with their knees covered in what Graham Hughes calls it grease. I assume it was like Vaseline or something. No, pure grease. <laughs> pure grease, yeah. We run the grease racket in this town. <laughs> and they rub it on the ball. So they rub the ball over their knees, which are covered in vaso. And then kick it off. There you go, Pinheads. Catch that. Or try to kick it off. And Benny Elias and I think Mal really raised the alarm. And Mal Meninga, yeah. Um, so Mal really, yeah, Mal Meninga. And the referee comes over and checks it out and takes the ball, boots it off the field, and they have to get another one. What a what an incredible racket. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? This is so much better than like lollygating cricket and all this stuff. Like That's sandpaper. Fantastic. This is it. This is it. What is it with English people in Greece? Because remember the no, James no. Graham James stage Graham on of the back of his legs. Yeah, put all that grease the on, the back, on the back of his legs. That's yeah. right. He's so noted, Someone... such a notedly slippery player, James Graham. He's always trying to slip through gaps and stuff. Like his memory serves. <laughs> yeah. I, someone, I think in that game, someone scooped a bit off the back of his leg and rubbed it in his face. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be doing that. James Graham was very no. like uh, off-putting, wasn't he? Like, but he the funny like thing, a serial killer. I remember yes. the next day after that incident. I remember listening to the continuous call team, and Ray Hadley was really like morally outraged by it and demanding that the NRL <laughs> put a stop to it and it be never allowed to happen again because it'd like cast a pall over the whole game. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, sort of like when someone bat you, someone calls a policeman a name or something. It's a Ray yeah, Hadley's yeah, time to like, shine his really, like, grease. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really loses it. Um, um, yeah. So you're right. This must have. So this. It's so, what, what's funniest about this is obviously it had happened before, but like what the thing is, it's a really close game, and like, what's the point? Because as long as Australia manages to catch the kickoff, yeah. the ball's going to be greasy for both teams. Like from this channel, right. like because you won't get the chance. I mean, I don't know if Schofield was thinking every set that we catch it, I'm just going to brush the. I'm going to rub the knee, catch it with the other hand, rub it again, oh, and boot it to him. Like, what's the? What, like, what's the? There doesn't seem to me to be another opportunity to regrease the ball. So it's, a, it's quite. It's thrown quite a lot in for this one set and where it the, might be yeah. greasy. And it's also that's right. And it's also. Um... It just strikes me a bit of a risk introducing grease into the match. It sort of introduces an X factor that I don't know. Like nobody really knows what impact that can have. Like if the ball's riddled with grease, it's kind of, it's anyone could start dropping it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like they're only going to get one set out of it. Then they've got to deal with the greasy ball. Like okay. unless you can force the error in the first four to five plays, which I mean, maybe you could. But well, then you and I will still... experiment with this. We'll, we'll get an old football out and we'll grease it. We'll see how hard it is to catch. We'll do that. Yeah, I think yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll have to do a controlled um, experiment. We'll go down yeah. to Henson. We'll go down to Henson Park. Next time mm. there's a game on at Henson Park, like a, and we're, uh, we'll go down there mm. and we'll have a bit of a kick about with the ball greaseless at halftime. Yeah. And then yeah. we'll grease it up. And boot around, see if there's any notable, noticeable difference in how many of them we're catching. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like I used to drop a lot of them without grease, so yeah, that's I'm not right. the best controlled experiment. Standard, but different standard, yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's wonderful. I just thought it was the most innovative thing I've seen in years. I, I yeah. was so happy. And it, to me, that's the story of this match, the knee greasing at half-time. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Genius. I'd like to see someone have a crack at it. Maybe, yeah, mm. I'd, I'd like to see somebody bring that back as an innovation. I thought it was tremendous. Oh, yeah. Um, Ellery, you know what struck me about Ellery Hanley? is that because of his reputation in Australia as this graceful centre, mm. watching him in this game, he had a quite a bit of like, he had quite a bit of like thuggery in his game. He was quite a, um, mm. he leaves the boot in a few times and leaves, drops the shoulder in. And he was quite a, mm. um, yeah, he had a bit of, he had a fair bit of niggle in his game. Like he really did. Well, he was a big man. He was a powerful man. And he had a swagger that was yeah. very noticeable. You know, he walked like, he walked like Viv Richards. Like yeah, yeah, you walk yeah. with, you know what I mean? Like, the, you yeah. know, when the, there's a walk where you'd like, I think I'm better than you and I yeah. am and I'm going to beat Kevin you. Kevin Peterson was another one of those. Yep. Cricket. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he, he had, had a big one. one. Yeah, he had a, yeah. He had a big one. It's not a lot of it in rugby league, but it's this rugby league guys with presence, but an actual swagger. Like it, yeah. this was, he swaggered like out on there. Like, and you're right. He didn't do a lot in the game, but he sort of seemed to just know that he was better than everyone else. Like, and, yeah. and that came across very clearly. But, but he, he, did, he um, wasn't, no, he, he wasn't a, he, he wasn't a, a prissy outside back. He was quite a tough, hard, Fighting, mm. scrapping kind of players. It was interesting. Mm. Right? Yeah, it, it changed the way that you, you, you imagine him a little bit. Um, he gets it on with Benny after a while in this game. Well, that's Benny what we're coming to. Down. So yeah. that's right. So uh, a few minutes into the second half, uh, so a fire goes off early with an injury. Paul Lachlan comes on. Uh, mm. And then there is a moment after some beautiful play from the oh. 30 metre mark. This is lovely football. It involves Cliff yeah. Lyons, as you'd imagine. He finds Brad Mackay, finds Belcher. Finally, the ball goes to Benny Elias, who's held up over the line. And there's a bit of scrap between him and Ellery. While, like, so Hanley's trying to get the ball off him. Mm. And there's a bit of this. And I think Ellery might just throw, just throw a boot out at him or something. And then the next minute, Benny, from the ground, swings his boot up and kicks Ellery in the, like, the hip. And then he staggers to his feet and throws one. And it's on. Yeah. He throws not a bad one either. And they get into a raging blue. There's an all-in kind of scuffle. Uh, and, and David Morrow weighs in with his uh, very uh, impartial commentary. Well, Hanley was fine to fight until it was all over. Then he hit the deck. So that's how injured <laughs> he is. <laughs> I'm not sure he did hit the deck. I couldn't even see that. I, I tried well, so to rewatch it. So he went down yeah. for treatment after the fight was over. Yeah. And Mor- Morrow's yeah. really imputed that he was like that he was pulling one on. But they, yeah. but the what, ref- do you think? Is there a suggestion that he should have gone down for treatment, having been punched in the face, and Benny coming again? Is there a suggestion he should have immediately sought treatment whilst yeah. Benny was trying to still fight? Tr- like, still yeah. punching him. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, what, yeah. yeah, I think that's a reasonable question. Um, but it's very good because they the, the the kind of scuffle happens and nobody gets sent off and they just get on with it. But then the game gets really bitter for a bit after this. Like it gets really mm. tough and nasty. Yeah. And Blocker Roach. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus wept. So Gregory takes a run, the halfback for Great Britain, who's had a really good game and mm. is really tough and like doesn't shirk it at all. He Agro, takes a run. He? Mm. Yeah, he was. He was a real agitator. And He's tackled low and then Blocker comes over the top with the big swinging arm, this big left arm, whack right across the face, right? It's like it's brutal violence. And David Morrow says, oh, that was fine. That wasn't high. <laughs> and, then they, <laughs> and they call the penalty to Australia. Uh, to Australia. Oh, sorry, to Britain. 
and, and they show the replay and even even Thirsty Morrow has to say, oh, actually, on reflection, having seen the replay, there was probably a bit in that. Like, that was a criminal oh. assault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he used his arm like an iron, straight iron bar and belted across the guy's head. Yeah. He's a bloody... Uh, he's a wonderful... I love Blocker because he's a wonderful yeah. mix of unusual skill and base violence. Yeah, <laughs> madness. Yeah, that's yeah. right. He's combining real cleverness and ability with abs- being absolutely like just a criminal like assailant. Yeah, that's it. And it kind of weirdly stirs Britain up. This bit of scuffle, it kind of almost does them some good because the next minute, this is what elevates the game, I think, from like a sort of nine or 10 out of 10 to sort of 15 out of 10, this period of the game, because <clears throat> like everything that happens after this, because once the fight breaks out and there's all this like swinging arms and things, the football somehow gets better. The play becomes even better. And Britain score a beautiful try in about the 50th minute. Gary Schofield, you mentioned at the top that he was very well rated by the people he played with at Balmain um, and very well rated by English judges. He was the golden boot winner in 1990. This was kind of his peak. And he just, just throws a beautiful pass. He holds it up, looks inside, throws it out wide uh, to the second row at Dixon who runs a really nice line, gets knocked over, gets up, goes again and scores. The crowd erupts. They're all singing. There's this din around the ground. Uh, and Eastwood misses the goal, but it's 6-4. And Britain have hit the front with half an hour to go, being 1-0 up in the series. Uh, and then, in the, and that, in the 55th minute, the game goes to a, an entirely new level, an entirely new plane, uh, with a piece of football, which I think you would have to say, Gazzy, touches the face of God. Yeah, it's um, this is the best game of all time. This is the best try ever scored in any level of rugby league ever anywhere in the entire world. That's a big call, but it's not a bad one. Like, no, it's, it's not. It's hard to argue with. Like, I, I, what's yeah. better than it? I, I can't. There's nothing. Of, it can't be. Yeah. No. Um, no. Let me. Let no, it's, it, it, this is a fact. It's not a call. It's just factual. There's no way you can get better than this. My my description of this try takes up five lines on my A4 mm. sized pad. Let me, let me take you through it. Bob Lindner is tackled and plays the ball about 40 out. Dummy halfs Elias, gives it to Roach. Roach offloads to Elias, who gives it to Stewart, who gives it to Lyons. Now, Cliffing Lyons is 40 metres out. He ends up running over towards the touchline, 40 metres out. Then he turns it back inside to Mackay after a, one of the most savage, he gives one of the most savage um, palms, like fens I've ever seen defend off a British defender. Then he gives it back to Mackay. Mackay to Shearer. Shearer offloads it back to Cliffy Lyons, back in the middle of the field. He turns inside to Belcher. Belcher offloads to Elias. Elias gives it to Stewart. Stewart fizzes it out to the right to Meninga. Meninga throws it over his head to Eddinghausen. Eddinghausen bursts off down the wing from 40 out, gets to about the 20, kicks in field, and Cliff Lyons is there to pick it up on his chest and fall over the line. Unbelievable. It starts about 40 metres or 50 metres out midfield. It goes through about 20 sets of hands. It goes all the way to the left wing. It comes all the way back to the centre. Seems to slow. It spends a little time loitering in the centre again. Then it swings all the way to the right wing. Goes Finally make the break down the right wing and they score basically next to the post back in the middle of the field. 14, by my count, 14 sets of hands involved in that try. Yeah. Which is good given there are only 13 players on the field. Yeah, well, About six lines, of them are possibly lines, touched it. Yeah, I was going to say, Cliff Lyons possibly touches it 11 times. It's incredible yeah. that he scores um, because so if you think about just his contribution to this, right, he has fended off and kept the play alive on the left. Then he gets it in the middle. And then 
And so he's all the way out on the right touchline, bobs up to get it uh, in the middle shortly after, and then scores on the right-hand side, 40 metres upfield. It's unbelievable. Yeah, And it's it, that it is. same thing, isn't it? It's make yourself available, keep the ball alive. Yep, and skill. Like in the yeah. promotion of skill, that players have skill and they use them. They don't get channeled into doing one thing. Um, look, the, the, the only thing I can say is I said at the top that you should watch this game. If you don't watch this game, and that's that, you know, that very much is to your own detriment, watch yeah. the try. Just go and get the try and get this try up. It's absolutely outstanding. It's incredible. It's the best thing you'll ever see. I think that's reasonable. It is stunning. I was like, I, I, I have seen this before, but I didn't realise this was it because you never think they're going to score until Eddinghausen kicks no. it. No. Like even it, because there's no reason for him to kick it. Like he, he just because even when Eddinghausen breaks, he's surrounded by players, and it's not the yeah. last tackle. You think, oh, well, he's going. That's a great bit of play. That's another great bit of play. But he'll get dragged down here, and instead he just boots it in field to keep the thing going. And it's um, it was you have only to go when, back and rewatch it to, to, because you don't know it's happening. That's what what you're getting. Like where you like you don't realize it's it. Once they score, you have to go. Well, hang on. I didn't even compute that that's all the same play. I have to go back now yeah. to appreciate that that's all the same piece of play. So yeah, it feels like right. five minutes ago that that play starts. And one of the funny things about commentary in this era, whenever anyone scores, they show about 10 seconds before the try. So you never mm. get to see any of the good stuff on this replay or the no. other tries. You miss the leader. So you have to go back and go, right, when Blocker's got the ball, you're like, this is the same play they score on in about two minutes. And Blocker's, <laughs> card, Blocker's carding it up in the middle of the park. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, we'll put it up. We'll, we'll find a clip of it. We'll put it up through the week and people can enjoy it for themselves. It's, it's just magnificent and stunning and everybody in the commentary box loses their mind. Imagine watching this at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, in, yeah. in Australia, like you would just People be dreaming. Mm. They, imagine the noise complaints. There would have been the coppers rung in every suburb around New South Wales and Queensland, uh, from oh, people yeah. just going berserk. It's um, yeah, it's incredible. And yeah, uh, the try that is most famous out of this game, the one that wins it, is the second best try in the game, and it's regarded yeah. as one of the best tries of all time. You know, <laughs> like it's not the best yeah. try in this game. Uh, yeah. yeah. And Meninga kicks the goal, and it's ten six. And the and the the Channel Ten uh, staff are so excited by all this, they put the wrong score up on the screen. They give Australia an extra <laughs> two points, which maybe they should have got an extra two points for this. Maybe it should have been a ah, bonus um, try. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bonus from the yeah. That's right. Um, <clears throat> and then <laughs> and and from here, Australia really become quite dominant in the game, and they get the running of it. And you think, oh, they're going to go on with this now. Like, they're going to win because Britain can't get out of their own half. They can't really get up the field. Benny Elias is weirdly, he just keeps raking the ball from marker. Mm. Um, he does this quite... You, you were saying, why didn't they always do this, you know, in the 70s? Benny mm. always seems to do it. He, he successfully rakes the ball maybe four or five times. I was going to say, he's become very much... You know, like, under the current NRL rules with the strip, how, like, Josh Hodgson's become, like, the, the greatest exponent of stripping, one-on-one yeah. strips yeah. in the NRL. Like, Benny Elias seems to have been, like, just the outstanding, like, striker from marker in the game. Yeah. When we keep watching, he just keeps pulling off. No one else seems to go for it, and he just seems to get it all the time. That seems mm. to have been, like, a real thing he did. Great piece of David Morrow commentary uh, where... One of the English players, one of the British players goes down, tackled, uh, and there's a bit of afters in the tackle. And <laughs> Morrow says, well, if he doesn't get to his feet, he deserves to get one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
It's hard to argue with. <laughs> and, then, and so the, the pattern of the game from the, for the next 15 minutes after the Lions try is that, oh, you know, Australia are, are dominant here and they're going to score again and they're, and, and they're going to win. Mm. And then Benny Elias rakes the ball out from dummy uh, from Marcus, like strikes in the play, the ball gets it back for Australia on halfway. They've got a massive overlap to the right. Ricky Stewart gets the ball. He eyes up the overlap. He looks up. He throws the long cutout pass that's going to put Mal Meninga away. But he doesn't because Lachlan, with like the go-go gadget arm, reels it in with his fingertips, reels it into his, uh, in, into his hand and runs 50 metres and scores. And from Australia dominating the game and looking like they're going to run away, Lachlan scores and Britain have a kick to take the lead with 10 minutes to go. Yeah, yeah. And the crowd obviously goes absolutely <laughs> wild. Um, this is, I think... Something that's important to add in here is I've recently heard Blocker talk about this game. He's given a bit of talk about this game. And um, what's interesting, because most people will know how the game finishes and we'll obviously get to it in a moment, but I think it's a really cool little story about a great player is that the Australians go... So this, you, when you see this, they've potentially just lost the Ashes. Yeah. They're gonna, they could fall behind. They're at least equal and they may fall behind in the game. And um, they get behind the goalpost and apparently Ricky Stewart just walks back there, puts a hand up and goes, sorry, fellas, I'll get us out of this. And just nothing else. Like we just no, just goes, shakes his head when he throws the pass, walks in and goes, sorry, fellas, I'll get us out of this. Yeah. And um, we'll just go back to talking check, live in a moment. What, isn't it just, you know, like it's the confidence and the... Yeah backing of yourself of an elite you know, there's only so many players in history as good as Ricky Stewart you know like it gets lost because everyone's got to be the best ever that comes through now but even allowing for all of that there's only so many players as good at halfback as he was and th- that sort of you know like that confidence of just being like don't worry about it I'm, I'm going to get us home is um it must give your team a lot of confidence and it just goes to show it's a sort of a swagger or a you know what I mean like it's mm. an attitude isn't it and confidence uh- just on Ricky Stewart, his kicking, there is nobody who kicks like that anymore. That there is no, I have no, in, in all my, in fact, in all my time watching football, I've never seen someone hit the ball like tactical long range kicking as well as Ricky Stewart. There is a kick he puts in in the first half from his own quarter line that goes out on the, um, goes out about 17 metres out from the, from the Great Britain line. And, there's quite a few times like that's a 60 meter kick downfield in from from the middle of the park into touch um forget about 40 20s and all this rubbish that's a 20 20 <laughs> like uh, and he, I, I have to laugh it, it, it's it, the other day the, the nrl's doing all these best ever polls recently and they did this best kicker ever yeah. poll and i had to like you want to talk about recency biases and we talk about how everyone's the next best ever they had a poll and they put up best kicker of the last 30 years like ricky stewart came fifth like they had jonathan thurston thurston and smith came first they're like smith's a hooker who kicks five oh, yeah. times a game like smith kicks five times a game when there's no markers to take pressure off his halfback like the only kick yeah. when he looks up and goes i'm under no pressure and it's on he's halfback i mean cronk's a better kicker than smith but like they to put a hooker in is ridiculous anyway, but it was Thurston Smith, then maybe Joey, then someone, then Ricky Stewart. And, like, I would argue that Ricky Stewart is pretty clearly the best ever. Um, Andrew did a lot of stuff Ricky could do, but I've always said, you know, I always think doing it first matters. Like, Ricky did all this new stuff that Joey was then able to see in it and try and replicate and was pretty good yeah. at too. But being the first matters, you know? It's yeah. like when Joey's banana kicks and all this, that if someone else does it second, 
there's something to being the first guy to be able to do it, I think, carries a lot of weight. Same reason that Halligan's one of the best kickers ever. Everyone kicks like him now, but no one did and he did it. So that's great. And yeah. to me, that's why Ricky is the best kicker. He's stunning. In, in my time watching just... it, No one's better than it now. And if you want to have an argument about it, I, I only think Andrew was near him and not better than him, but near him. I don't think anyone kicks like that, ever. You know? No, like, I, I, think I, I, I think he's he, he in was, a league um... of his own. No, he. I totally agree. He he just oh. some of the kicks that he puts in this game are unbelievable. Long oh. range, bang! I, yeah. yeah, um, the kick so on both than the sides was guys. really good. The the um Schofield kicked really well as well at, at times, but um, but nothing like that. Yeah, he was he was glorious. Um, yeah. I, I just had to get that in there because I, I they, they bug me some of these recency things. Just maybe yeah. if you didn't see these players, just don't vote in it. You don't know. That's why I never saw Ricky Stewart. Don't vote for like. I'm sorry, Jonathan Thurston's one of the greatest players ever. And Democracy so manifest, Gazzy. Democracy oh, manifest. They're, they're two of the best players ever. Don't get me wrong, but they did not ki- have a kicking game better than Ricky Stewart. So just melt no. yourself in the head if you think that. Yeah. Um, and it, good point though. Schofield had a good kicking game too. And it, to talk styles, he was very much. Um, he played a lot like a, a fly half. They played a game yeah. where he kicked early and he was big and not an athlete, but he was clever. He put guys, he, he had a guy held up over the line with a short ball. He set up a try and he kicked long and early. He was very good. But yeah, Stewart's game, it, long boot, I think is unrivaled personally. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm al- with you. Allowing, allowing for Andrew John's bias, I still think he's the best ever, Ricky. That's, so there's that's, your, yeah. your marker. Because I yeah. sort of say Joey's the best at every skill set of all time that's ever existed. Yeah. Like, and yeah. no, Ricky, Ricky. No, I'm totally on board. Um, yeah, I'm glad that we've been able to thrash this out because you're right. Um, but this is why the cemetery project is so important. Uh, and this yeah. is why we will continue to seek government funding to con- for this project because yeah. people need to be made aware, you know, all these bozos getting onto stupid internet polls and voting for Jonathan Thurston and Cameron Smith as the best like, in-play kickers of all time are fools. But they need to be educated. They need to, the the, the ignorance, we need to, you need to fight back against ignorance with historical, like viewing of historical football. It's the only thing that's going to overcome this terrible ignorance in our society. Uh, And that's why we truly are doing the Lord's work on the, on the, on the rugby league cemetery. Um, But Ricky Stewart at this point has potentially cost them the series, as you say, by throwing this intercept. I mean, it's one, it's a cracking intercept too, just quietly. He doesn't put it on. The the try was on. Yeah, yeah. It was the yeah, he's like entitled they, to think, they would have scored untouched, Australia. Yeah, even if he sees Lachlan coming, he's entitled to think he doesn't catch mm. this. Uh, yeah. But it's just one of those bits of magic that happen in this game where he reels it in. Um, he at probably pace, couldn't. You know, yeah. when you, you hit an intercept at not like he sticks his hand out, bats it, and gets it. It's when you get guys and they hit it at pace immediately. Like yeah. the timing has and he's to be off. perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, beautiful. I love intercepts. They're terribly exciting. Um, and so he scores with about ten minutes to go. Eastwood misses the goal from a fairly good position. He really ought to be kicking this. Having missed the other one, uh, he puts it very wide. It's a, he hits it quite badly as well. Um, and so it's 10 all with 10 minutes to go. And there's a lot of speculation about who would benefit from a draw more, uh, which is very, you know, Britain, Graham Hughes is very certain that a draw suits Australia and they wouldn't be displeased with it, I, which I found very odd because Britain were 1-0 up in the series. And like... <laughs> Australia kind of, if they lost that match, couldn't win the series. It goes to this yeah. Ashes thing. Oh, but, you know, we'll just win the last game and retain the Ashes. 
Um, there's a difference between retaining and winning a series. I think those players, whilst they don't want to lose the Ashes, predominantly would have liked to have won 3-0 yeah. or 2-1. Especially not... given that Australia had like, won every series for 20 years. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Like, it's, uh, yeah, you, you put it, it's a very similar situation to the 05 Ashes in the cricket. I just really think that a drawn series, even with us retaining it, would have left with notes of Australia thinking they didn't go that well, having not yeah, lost there in, that's right. since the, in the mid-80s. You know, like, there's yeah. a sense of occasion to this, and they would have felt they didn't do what they were sent there to do. Yeah. Uh, he also, Lachlan, he kind of, just doesn't make it any easier for Eastwood because he doesn't run it around. He dives very. Have you ever seen someone dive to score a try like this, with the ball out in front in both hands? It was like it was very odd. And no, it's I was a video like, game thing. They do that on like yeah, video yeah, yeah. rugby video games. Yeah, never never live. Yeah, so it was good to see that. There is some great scramble from Great Britain because Australia start really throwing this around. Mm. Uh, Graham Hughes's views notwithstanding, they really do try and win this game. And so they start. They try and win it while Graham Hughes keeps yelling that they don't need to. It's one of those bizarre. Like this is a game you're trying to talk up, and Australia are fizzing it side to side, desperately trying to win. And he just keeps going, "A draw will suit him. It doesn't matter what happens here. They're just got to hold on. Just got to keep it." Meanwhile, they're hurling it across the field, (laughs) manically Uh, trying to score. (laughs) I tell you something else I've never seen before: the angle at which Ricky Stewart attempts the field goal with a few minutes to go. Yep. You see, this is like he's about ten out maybe 15 metres to the left of the posts and just gets it. Goes, oh, yeah, I'll have a nip at this and misses. But it's uh, I, I've never seen someone take one from there and I'd be happy never to see it again. <laughs> it'd, it'd be like the position on the field would be like taking one from a tap if you'd kicked for touch and you were taking the tap. Like, it's just yeah. a bizarre slotted angle. Yeah, it was, it was odd, yeah. Yeah, I liked it, though, uh, yeah. as, as troubling as it was. Uh, and then Schofield misses a field goal attempt that kind of runs on the ground uh, with about five minutes to go. And then we enter the final minutes and there is drama and everybody talks about the end of this game, but there is huge drama. And I think Great Britain are entitled to have a bit of a grievance here with four minutes to go. There's a lovely ball from Gregory who puts Schofield away. The crowd goes absolutely berserk. The game really builds. He's on halfway. He gets dragged down just short of the quarter line. He gets up just as Dixon did in scoring the try a few minutes earlier. He's kind of tackled and gets to his feet and plays on passes the ball and the referee calls him back and blows a penalty to Australia saying he was held. And whether he made the right call or not, this is a bit stiff. 50-50, yeah. Um, like it's just a bit... He, he couldn't it's possibly funny have... that that happens at that moment after all the commentary about like the French referee dogging Australia. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just... I get that he probably did like the referee probably did call held, but like the roar around the ground, there's 50,000 people at Old Trafford making an obscene amount of noise. This is the rule, isn't it? That they've now changed. I suspect mm. if this happened now, they would say, go back and play it. That was a wonderful it, common sense change, wasn't it? Yeah. And it took them far too long to do it as we've discussed, mm. but this was, this was pure go back and play it. But you know, like with three minutes to go, he's broken through and he's on, he's tackled on the quarter line. Notwithstanding their fairly ordinary record of field goal shots so far in the game, they just might have fancied themselves from that position with a couple of tackles up the sleeve to get something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and instead, it's a penalty to Australia, uh, which doesn't come to anything because <clears throat> Australia tear up the other end with two minutes to go. And Laurie Daly jumps out a dummy half on last tackle and grubbers the ball dead at 10 oh. all in the, in the second test. Um, that was appalling. Oh, Laurie. 
Ricky Stewart screaming for it to the right. <clears throat> Meninga's in the middle of the park as well. And Laurie said, no, 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 this is on. And ducks down the left-hand side and grubbers it into the in goal. And it goes dead. And at that Easily point, too. Belts yeah, it well just dead. Belts yeah. it well. Like they're very narrow in goals in the UK. Uh, and at that point you think, oh, well, that, 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 that might be it. You know, that might have been their last chance. But you'd be wrong. Mm. Because there's a really horrible, messy scrum on halfway. Uh, it finally comes through and just absolutely clobbers Ricky Stewart, like bashes him. <laughs> I don't know how Ricky recovered to take the run that he does two minutes later because he gets hammered and is down for treatment. Australia get a penalty and Elias takes a field goal shot, which grubbers along the ground. And you think, oh, well, that's it. That's their last chance. They won't win now. Uh, and it's going to be a draw because Gary Schofield with a cup with you know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute left on halfway puts a really nice touch finder in about five metres out from the Australian line. And that's it. Like they're going to ruck it out for a couple of plays and that will be, it'll be 10 all and England, Great Britain will lead one nil and going into the last test. But they don't. Do they, Gazzy? No, they certainly don't. They certainly don't. Um, I wonder if they put that into touch um, trying to win the scrum. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like, I wonder, because it was a bit odd that you'd think with that amount of time left, you just wouldn't otherwise bomb it for a contest or, you know, run it. And they really did just find it was a nice touch finder, but I just sort of think that they would have, you may as well have tried to win the series. Um, I wonder if they thought, let's push in the scrum, because the scrums were still nominally competitive, even though they were, I don't think anyone won against the feed. So I wonder if that was the thinking. Hmm. No, that's interesting. I, 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 I thought that myself, that maybe they thought in the mess of scrums, they might be able to get one go yeah. the wrong way. Yeah. Like it's kind of, it's a bit conservative, but it sort of says, oh, well, we put it in touch five out. They won't win and we might get something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I suppose. It's just 10 all with a couple of, you know, they, just, they could have won the series with a play. That's all. Yeah, but, that's know. it. Yeah, of course. Um, but can, you, can you talk us through what happens next? Australia take uh, a couple of rucks and then... Yeah. Well, a couple of plays where not much happens. Ricky Stewart gets it about probably about 10 metres out or similar to that, and he throws the big dummy and bang, he's off. He goes sort of three-quarters of the way down the field, ignores Eddinghausen a couple of times, and eventually really finds a lovely ball to mail back on his inside in traffic that was a lot harder than the pass he could have thrown to Eddinghausen quite a few times. And, and Mal crashes over. They go 90, 90 95 metres in injury time. I think it's over. They say it's in injury time. Um, and Ricky Stewart, just with one of the most clutch plays in sort of the history of the sport, um, goes from zero to hero. He just, like, big dummy. You know what it reminded me? It reminded me of a few times that for younger listeners that Thurston won the Origin Series doing stuff like this with a big show and go. It was like mm. the halfback gets the ball and he just went the big dummy. They, they fell for it dead and he went, bang. Everyone was too tired to go with him. He went and went and went. And when the cover came, he sort of, Looked inside, looked inside. Mal was on his outside. Mal cuts back in. He perfectly times the pass in a bit of cover defence traffic. And the big fella, the captain, goes over horribly ungracefully, but <laughs> all the same well, still counts. And Yeah, there's a couple of things about this. It, it is it's stunning um, because they're just throwing it around like every... Because teams do this all the time, right? They're in trouble. They're trying yeah. to win a game in the last minute. Nothing's happening. They're pinned on their own line. And they just kind of chuck it around and someone will try and do something. And... <clears throat> The ball goes from like Stewart's already touched it. He gives it to Lidner. Lidner turns it back inside the Lions. Like it's just, it's just sort of balls yep. just singing around. And Stewart throws the dummy. Lee Jackson tries to charge it down, 
like instead of trying to tackle him, he chucks the, like he goes the full Superman to try and knock the pass down. I just think, <laughs> I just feel that the risk of him passing to someone with an overlap from ninety meters out might have been less than the risk of him dummying and going himself, like objectively. <laughs> um, but anyway, notwithstanding that, the other thing I want to raise with you about this incredible try: would it be allowed today? Because Malmeninga who looms up. Oh, the jostle. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Right. He looms up like a Goliath in the background. And Ricky Stewart's kind of getting chased down, getting chased down. And Mal completely changes his line and just clobbers one of the chasers. I think it's Gibson. Just bangs yes. him out of the way with the big shoulder on Stewart's right and then turns up on Stewart's left to receive the pass and go over to score. I put it to you, my learned colleague, that if that occurred in the days of the bunker, even though it doesn't have that much bearing, and even though there's no necessarily, uh, there's no, there's not necessarily any chance Gibson would have got him, I reckon they would have overturned it. It's possible. Changed possible. His line. I, I wouldn't. I think the, I think there's an argument they were shoulder to shoulder, and Mal just had much bigger shoulders. <laughs> like they were, Mal is trying to cut back in defence, and they're both running shoulder to shoulder, and he sort of bumps him pretty hard, but. He's sort of just really big. No, I don't know. Uh, I know what you're getting at. Uh, nah, I'm okay with it. I reckon it's a try. Mm. They, they, they it made it well. Because, well it should be a try. But, it, but yeah, it's they're technocrat that... idiots. They're technocrat idiots and they pull all sorts of weird stuff up. You might be right, but... It's the sort um, of thing now yeah. that would look bad. They'd be like, oh, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that looks wrong. Um, you run into a defender, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean, especially when he then scores the try. But, um, yeah... I don't know. Um, I'm comfortable with it. I would have given it, but yeah, I guess there's probably some technical breach there. Yeah, it's um, it's remarkable, isn't it? And the the commentary is so exuberant and exciting, and everybody like it, it's one of those ones where even the other commentators are just yelling in the background, yeah. like oh! ah, <laughs> all this kind of thing. Hmm. A friend of mine who watched this live um, and also taped it still has the tape. Like the VHS tape of this of this game, um, which is very good because I don't think he has anywhere. Like I don't think he has a VHS player anymore. But he's he's kept. He's never given the tape. He says, "Oh no, no I've still got it somewhere." Um, because, like, again, imagine watching this in the early hours of the morning. You'd be doing laps uh, around. You'd have your shirt off doing laps around the. Like you, you your family would be coming out saying, "Hey, what, what the hell's going on?" Yeah, you'd be stomping but, but, around on it. The commentary of this is like very few moments in league have this. The the one that jumps out, it's like the the Albert try in ninety seven. Like there's just these moments that come out of nowhere where the commentators just lose all like objectivity and just are stunned by what's happened. Like there's yeah, very and they just start yelling moments, and screaming. Um, yeah. The origin try, the Mark Coyne try. There's yeah, just now yeah. and then. It's just now and then, very rarely, a few times a decade, something in a big game of importance at the final second happens that's so incredible, you can't quite believe it and you can't quite maintain your polish as a commentator. And just um, the, the audio is just hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, because you just, they just sort of start wailing. There's no, there's not really any attempt to uh, soberly analyse the play. They just sort of start no. screaming, you know, sort of making a lot of racket. And that's what's great about it. Like, that's sort of, you're supposed to cover the excitement of this sort of thing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful bit of football. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, I suppose the thing with, with Ricky is just that, we've talked about it before, but to do that when he did it, you know, like after having thrown the intercept to, to make that play himself. I said it a little bit before, it's pretty special to have had the confidence to say yeah. he was going to do it and to then go and do it. 
um, when and to it's throw on the, the line. To, to, to you know to 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 think to throw the dummy from ninety out on the siren, you know, like mm. it's fair, it's a fairly big risk when you've already taken one. You've thrown like you've taken a risk and thrown an intercept. To then go, no, no, I'm going to wear the responsibility for this and throw the dummy rather than giving it to someone else, let it be their problem. It's, it's yeah, you're right. Um, it is good. And, uh, and and that's it. And the siren goes as Mel. Just, just Mel's a bad goal kicker, can I just say? <laughs> Terrible. Jesus, wept. Like he's, he kicks one from three. One from three in this game. He kicked two from four in the previous game. And I think he kicks one from four in the last game. Um, he stinks. Yeah, I don't know why he kicked. He was an abysmal goal kicker. He really yeah. was. Yeah, so he misses he misses the goal. The siren goes and that's it. And the Australian players run over to all the people in the green and gold track suits. Uh, and, of course, they then, having been seconds away from 1-0 with one to play, they then get to one all with one to play and win the last test 14-0 in Leeds. And that's that. And they win the series. And, they, and they've never lost the Ashes since. they the, Australia have won every Ashes series since 1973 uh, and probably will keep winning them ad infinitum now. I mean, the gap is so big. This was kind of the last stand, wasn't it? Because during the 80s, the gap had started to open up and you had the Invincibles Tour in 86 and this kind of thing. By 90, it's kind of the last, this is kind of the last hurrah, I would say, of, of the Ashes and Australia versus Britain. This is the last big kind of... Um, there have been other good matches and there have been other good series, but this was probably when it was... This was the last sort of series when it was still in its peak and it was still very important and significant. I guess maybe 94, but um, it was certainly on the way out by this point. It was on the way out. Yeah, that's right. And there's a good series around the 2000s that we will watch one day with the Adrian Morley miracle and all of this. But um, by that time, it would have been such an astronomical shock rather than a passionate thing to watch. Like by that time, you wouldn't stay up thinking, you know, in the Morley era where that, you know, going, they're going to win sorry, that this is going to be the best contest and it'll be great. And geez, I hope Australia win. We've got to win the ashes. It would be more like, I don't know, you're watching it. It would just be stunning if they got beat. Yeah, and it'd be That's like, oh, thing. really, Australia be... lost the test. It wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, it'd, it'd be, be stunning. And you didn't have the passion for it. Like, I would have rather, as a kid at that time, I would have dealt a lot better with that and been like, oh, that's a shame that Australia didn't win, as opposed to, say, Origin, which was really crushing. To have Queensland win really yeah. dampened your, your, your six months for, you know, like it was, that that was where <laughs> your energy went into. You'd be upset about that for a long time. Oh, they're bloody another year of these dickheads carrying on in Queensland about being better than us and stuff. Whereas the test was like, oh, I hope Australia win. It did become a bit of that. But this is still, this would have been devastating for the rugby league community to have caught me. Yeah, to have lost. It would have been, there yeah. would have been a lot of soul searching. You know, yeah. people would have been, there would have been people never picked again and all this kind of stuff. Reviews. Coach yeah. would have been sacked and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it would have been a real, a real indignity. Yeah. yeah. Um, you wanted the, one of the people who might have uh, earned the wrath of this was Ricky Stewart. And, but you were talking, you were saying off air that, uh, that he, this was the first of two series in which he wasn't picked at halfback for the first test, came into the side and then won the last two at halfback. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what I wanted to finish off um, my final piece today was just um, have a little look at Ricky and, and Alan Langer. Um, and this isn't designed to be an attack on, on Alan Langer, but what I just want to do is he's had a clutch moment in this game, Ricky, and he's been played a key role in two series coming from behind. So um, I guess my thing is that I think now, amongst the Nuff community, we all know how good Ricky Stewart was, if we're all a bit yeah. mad. But in your pub talk, Alan Langer's got a statue. Um, Wayne Bennett's still talks about Alan Langer all the time and is a key sort of figure in the game that, that talks up Alan Langer a lot. And in Queensland, they'll go, oh, yeah, JT and Alan Langer. Like, the sort of... Uh, he rightfully is is mythologised as being one an absolute great. But his great rival for quite a few years was the Canberra halfback, Ricky Stewart. Mm. And I feel that in the pub, people now would think that Alan Langer was a lot better than Ricky or Ricky's just lost his edge um, states matter as well because Queenslanders are really frothing at the mouth mad. And, yeah, and, and they, they do. They, they kind of they back their people in, don't they? Like they really yep, kind of campaign yep. hard. Yeah, they do. So they don't get as forgotten as much. And and whereas after Ricky, there's sort of been a you know a string of guys in, you know, um, you know we had Daly kept playing, Fitler kept playing, Andrew Johns came through. There's this role of people that way. Um, and and for whatever reason, I don't know. I'm not here to speculate on it. Langer is just probably remembered better now in the pub chat as one of the great halfbacks as opposed to Ricky and you know they had a great rivalry and 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 to start off I will look at the kangaroo tours so so in 1990 they start with Alan Langer at halfback and Ricky yep. plays 5-8 and they get beat 19-12 and you know Ricky's not a 5-8 and um, they respond to that by dropping Alfie for Ricky and not only do they win that Ricky literally does win the game win the game for them. So yeah. he comes in, in real clutch and they win that and they go in and they win the series. He plays in the third game and Alan Langer doesn't play again. And and Ricky wins the uh wins the series. Yep. So come around to nineteen ninety four. Uh again, this time Ricky is left out altogether of the first test by Bob Fulton again. Good on you, Pozo. Um he, he starts Alan Langer and they lose eight four again. And again, his response to this is to bring in Ricky and Alan Langer plays on the bench in the next two tests. Mm. Uh super sub role. Um yeah. and Ricky Stewart comes in for the second test at halfback. They win thirty eight eight. Um yeah. uh, he plays the third test, they win 23-4. So I'll go through some other stuff in a second, but just already just there, you know, Australia never lose to Great Britain. They had been winning for 20 years. And, you know, they start both series with a halfback who gets dusted by them and they pick his rival and they win in 1990. In 1994, they smoke them. They don't just beat them. They smoke them with Ricky at the helm. And I, I suppose, again, I'm not here to bag Alan Langer. I'm here to show how good Ricky was. And there was a situation where uh, Alfie didn't get it done on two straight tours um, and they had to bring in Ricky. And when they did, in 90, he won it himself. He, you know, he iced the game. And in the other tour, you know, they, they win with him at the helm. When they put him at halfback, which is the key position on the field, they're too good for their opposition. So... I use this to go, okay, well, you know, their club careers are both great. They won a lot of comps and did a lot of good stuff. But I thought, you know, well, let's have a look at the other rep football and see how that played out. And um, so what I've done is that in State of Origin, they played uh, in four full series against each other. And they played in a fifth series against each other twice. But Ricky missed one game in that. Mm -hmm. So um, in the five series they played, uh, Ricky won four and Alan Langer won one. I'm going to be fair to Alfie and say in the four full series they played, Ricky won three and Alfie won one. And in the other one that I've given to Ricky, they actually were one all because they won the game Ricky didn't play. So I think to be fair, we'll take that out and say they played um, four full series and Ricky got him 3-1. He got him 8-6 overall. 
Um, and after 1991, Alf won two one in 91. Ricky had won in 90. Alfie never beats him again, 92, 93, 94. Alan Langer never wins a series that Ricky which Stewart plays at halfback in. Which, which is interesting given the, that that was a period where the Broncos were so strong. Like, I mean, this is the, these are the years in which the Broncos are winning the comp and just really belting everyone. Yeah, they're winning the competition, um, you know, with, with Langer at the helm. He's playing with all those club combinations at rep level as well, which is obviously a big... I mean, Ricky had plenty of Raiders in there, but, you know, yeah. Alf has got, got his whole Broncos squad in there. And, and yeah, the bottom line is 8-6 overall in games, 3-1 uh, in series, four one, uh, you know, 4-1 in series that they played in it all, is that Ricky Stewart has a very good representative record against Alan Langer. He has a record of coming in to take over from sides that Alan Langer didn't win with and winning... At, at, at test level with him in there and um you know i'm not here to make a judgment on, on who was better i didn't watch these guys every year they were i watched the tail of their career i saw the tail of of um langer and i missed the best of ricky so there's no judgment on that they're both great players um but i, I just think one's been remembered a little above the other and there's just a few stats there to make you say okay you know when you talk Alan Langer, you probably got to talk Ricky Stewart because he had the wood on him at Origin. He, he got done what he couldn't in in Test series that mattered, and they obviously both have exceptional club careers. So I just wanted to make that point. Um, Ricky never plays Origin again after '94. Once the Super League series that he's not allowed to play in in '95. So he's another one like Brett Mullins that we've mentioned before, whose career was hit by this, that the Super League robbed him of another year or two. And, and you know, uh, maybe Alfie would have beaten him too. He got robbed of a chance to, to play against him and even that record. But I suppose I just wanted to put that out there and say that you have a great halfback who had made a great clutch play. And if you look across this series, had a lot of really good series and a lot of really good performances when compared to his great rival. That's all. There you go. And yet again, uh, on the Rugby League Cemetery, Gazzy correcting or adjusting uh, the record of rugby league history, and, and you know, and, and in years to come, in a hundred years' time, when people you know talk about two centuries of rugby league, these these little five-minute passages of yours uh, talking about why we should remember why the Wok was a great coach and why Ricky Stewart was at least as good as Alan Langer and all this kind of thing, um, you know, they're going to be a big part of the story. They're, you're kind of you're changing the narrative. You're changing the narrative history of rugby league uh, week by week on this program, and it's a privilege to sit here on the other end of the line and just, and, and, and here you set these things out. But I think, right. I mean, Ricky Stewart was, um, you're right. I don't think he is remembered as a genuine, by, by, by ordinary punters at least, isn't, isn't regarded as one of the absolute gun halfbacks of all time. And maybe he should be, uh, but watch it. It's been, it's been very good to watch him, uh, to, to watch the way he kicked like nobody had ever kicked before. And to be honest, nobody's really ever kicked since. Um, and some of the other things he did, he was obviously very clever around the field. He had a bit of a run. He had a bit of a part. He had a good pass. Uh, yeah, it's been a treat to watch him a couple of times. And I dare say uh, we'll watch him a couple of times more as we go on. Uh, Gazzy, this, you know, you, you said through the week that you'll, this, watching this game has changed your life. How do you think life will be different now that you have watched Kangaroo Tour test number two from 1990? Well, all week, colours have been brighter. I've been seeing sounds. I've had a skip in my step and, and a little smirk on my face. My worry is that things will darken as time goes on and I realise nothing. There's a, there's a South Park episode where Cartman hears the funniest joke he's ever heard and nothing else is funny anymore. He never laughs yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. He's gone, that, none of this is funny. That was so funny that I can't find anything funny again. I am worried that we will watch games now and it will just be, well, this just isn't the 1990 kangaroo tour and the world will go dark around me. But well, for now I, I live with 
the basking glow that I hope to carry onward into the future. Fantastic. Well, on that on that extraordinary note, uh, we leave you from the rugby league cemetery. Until next time. Go! Roach comes straight down the centre. Back to Elias. Stewart.